Good afternoon or good morning or good evening, depending on where you might be in the world. Welcome to this um, event at the London School of Economics, co-sponsored by the School of Public Policy at LSE, the Department of Finance and the Institute for Global Affairs. Very, very uh, happy to have you here and to have people join for this discussion. The subject of today, and this is of course not the first nor the last uh, public event that we've held, held on uh, COVID-related uh, subjects, is financing the post-COVID recovery. It is not uh, a mystery to anyone that uh, governments around the world, and of course also private firms around the world, but particularly the public sector, have been spending unprecedented amounts of money on first the crisis response, relief to families, workers who have lost their jobs, and next all kinds of support for firms, small, medium, and large, provision of credit, paying wages for furloughed workers, etc., etc. And this is of course a challenge throughout the world. Uh, rich countries, uh, advanced nations in, in North America or Europe or parts of Asia, of course, have an advantage because they can draw upon much deeper capital markets and they have the room to finance at least part of the effort through monetary policy and money creation. That is not necessarily the case. In fact, that is seldom the case among um, emerging nations and developing nations. And what we are hoping to achieve today is to have a broad look across the world across different uh, income categories of what the issues are, what governments are doing, and more importantly, what governments ought to be doing, what are the policy alternatives, how do we get this right? Because there's absolutely no question that the scale of the uh, effort today is gigantic. It will not get any smaller as we go into the second stage, or maybe the third stage, and governments begin to spend money to stimulate the recovery. And as a result, uh, what the financing sources are, how healthy, reliable, stable they are, you know, will the world have too much debt? What happens to countries that were severely indebted already, particularly in the developing world? Those are all kinds of issues that we're going to be talking about today. We are very, very lucky to have an absolutely stellar panel with us, um, with people uh, with uh, careers spanning the world of public policy and government, academic uh, research in economics and finance, and also the private sector, the actual provision of capital to countries. And I'm going to introduce the speakers in the order in which I will be giving them the floor in just uh, a minute or two. First, we have uh, Jeremy Settlemeyer who is the Deputy Director in the Strategy, Policy and Review Department of the IMF. And Jeremy, of course, has had a long career uh, of working in policymaking positions in um, IFIs in Washington, and also has held senior positions in uh, the German Treasury and in the German public sector. Next will be Anne-Lord Kiesel, who today is uh, one of the senior partners at Global Sovereign Advisory, but who's had a, an illustrious and distinguished career in private finance, both uh, in New York, um, working for some of the leading investment banks in that city, and also on the European continent. 
and she has vast uh, experience on issues of uh, sovereign debt management and debt restructurings, which of course are going to be some of the really big issues going forward in the next uh, few months and years. Next on our very distinguished panel is uh, Professor Ugo Panizza, who is a professor of economics and a Pictet chair in finance and develop, development sorry, at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. And Ugo also, uh, in addition to his um, life as an academic, has done work uh, in the policy space uh, in international financial institutions in, in the United States and, and, um, and in Europe. Uh, and um, last but certainly not uh, any less important is one, one of the co-organizers, probably the person who did the heavy lifting in putting this panel together, um, Simeon Jankov, who's the co-director for policy and the research fellows in the financial markets group at the LSE, and who in addition to being a researcher and a distinguished academic, had a, a previous life uh, as a policymaker as a deputy prime minister and finance minister of Bulgaria between 2009 and 2013. So he was in government, as was I actually, during the last crisis. So we have some recollection of how tough that was and um, some of those lessons may be relevant for today. Without further ado, I'm going to turn to the panel. Um, I'm going to ask each one of them to deliver some brief uh, remarks, about five minutes each. Uh, then I will take the chair's liberty of asking a question to each one of them. Um, we don't have to be too formal if in the second round one of the speakers would have to, would like to intervene and, and add something to what's been said. Please just uh, raise your electronic hand and after we are done with those two initial rounds we will open it up for Q&A from the audience. So gentlemen, the floor is yours for about five minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Andres. Uh, pleasure to be here. Let me try and share my screen. Okay. Um, sorry for the for the uh, sliding around. Um, so um, I'm going to be talking about the emerging market uh, perspective. So at the fund, I work mostly on uh, emerging market and to some extent low-income country debt uh, debt issues. Uh, and so I just want to make uh, two points. Uh, so the, the first point relates directly to Andres's uh, introduction, uh, which is that the typical stylized fact, a very robust stylized fact in financial crises, emerging market crises, no, so in any type of emerging market crises, I would say since the early 19th century, is that uh, advanced countries and emerging markets are in a completely different spot when it comes to their ability to use capital markets as buffers. So when advanced countries uh, get into trouble, they can go out and borrow and mitigate shocks. Uh, that is not true, uh, typically for emerging markets. And in fact, in many cases, the shock is triggered uh, by a tightening of financial conditions, uh, a so-called sudden stop. Uh, or very, at the very least, it is magnified uh, by a tightening of financial conditions. Now, this time round has been very different. So there has been some tightening of financial conditions. And there was one of these infamous sudden stops uh, in capital inflows in March. 
And so um, emerging markets were hit in many more ways uh, than advanced countries. Subsequently, however, uh, this has disappeared. So we will see in a second of whether this is fragile or not. It is probably fragile, but the remarkable stylized fact is that external finance has acted as a shock absorber on net in this crisis, even for emerging markets, not as an amplifier. And that is unusual in a historical uh, sense. And so the consequences of that is that given that they had uh, continued access to debt finance or sometimes regained access after briefly losing it, uh, macroeconomic policy reactions in emerging markets have actually looked a lot like policy reactions in advanced countries, only less so. Uh, and by saying they have looked a lot, what I mean is that they have been counter-cyclical. So I just want to show you a few charts to illustrate this point. So the first point is... Uh, the size of the shocks. Uh, so this does not include the original shock, which is the COVID shock, which is, of course, still developing. It does not include the domestic reactions to the COVID shock. It simply includes the external shocks over and above the COVID shock. So on the left uh, chart, you see the collapse in trade, which hits uh, emerging markets to external demand. You see the collapse in tourism, proxied by the drop in total flight arrivals. In the middle chart, you see commodity prices uh, dropping um, uh, precipitously in uh, February and March, and this hits commodity exporters. May, many emerging markets are commodity exporters, it's particularly true for oil exporters, but also for metal exporters. You also see a bit of a recovery in April and May, but not to the original levels. And finally, in the right chart, you see the sudden stop. So the sudden stop is the spike uh, I hope you can see my mouse, is this uh, spike that you see uh, downward in, uh, in March. Uh, a very large outflow of almost $90 billion in portfolio flows. So these are secondary market uh, outflows. And then you can see that there's a little bit of a recovery in the uh, April and May. Those are the bars right at the end to the right, but not nearly enough to compensate for the outflow. So that is essentially the standard picture. I could have shown you the same uh, chart, almost the same chart, two months ago to motivate the fact that uh, emerging markets were going to be in deep trouble. But then something extraordinary happened, uh, which is that financial conditions essentially reversed uh, in April uh, and May. And so, you know, the, the two uh, charts to the left show this quite dramatically. So one is, um, a, as a proxy for financial conditions, both local currency yields and external uh, currency yields, or so foreign currency yields, uh, at which uh, emerging markets borrow on average. And so after this very sharp spike in March, they have come down precipitously. And they are, in fact, back not to the pre-crisis levels. So they're still above pre-crisis levels in, in general, um, uh, certainly with respect to foreign currency. Uh, but they are about back to the level where they were last summer. Now, Important to state, these are yields, not spreads. Uh, so this is, in some sense, benefits from the general decline of the safe interest rate through very expansionary monetary policy in advanced countries. And it also doesn't pick up the fact that inflation expectations have come down. So in real terms, this might still be a tightening, but still a remarkable recovery. The, the most stunning chart, I think, is the in the middle one. So this shows emerging, emerging market sovereign debt issuance uh, since the beginning of the year. And so you see very nicely the pre-COVID, uh, the sudden stop, and the post-sudden stop phase. So the pre-COVID phase, it just chugs along, 
pretty much within this yellow fan chart, which is the minimum maximum range of issuance over the last uh, 12 years or so. Then you see it completely flatten. So that is the sudden stop in February and March. And then you see it pick up again and not only pick up back to the old rates, but actually exceeding the old rates so that we now have the highest issuance in any year since 2008 up to this point in the year. Uh, now, of course, this is a reflection of the exceptional need, right? So this reflects demand factors. This is not necessarily good news, but nonetheless, the market was able to uh, respond to those needs. I, I should also hasten to add, there's a lot of country heterogeneity in here. So if you look at Latin America, for example, Chile is off the charts in terms of issuance, very high issuance, whereas Brazil is, is not. Uh, Brazil has been below the issuance of previous years. And then the final chart just makes the point that in spite of sort of this good news, there are still um, some countries that have been cut off from external finance as a result of the crisis. So this is a sort of rough proxy. I use 750 basis point spreads as sort of roughly indicate sort of the, the um, proportion of uh, uh, emerging markets that would generally have the ability to issue, right? This is why they have bonds for which these spreads are defined, but they then uh, get into trouble and, and the spreads rise to levels where typically you do not see issuance. And so, you know, just before the crisis, we had six, by this tally, six emerging markets that were in that category, two low-income countries. Of course, we have many fewer low-income countries that are for which spreads are recorded at all. Uh, and then that rose to a very high number, right, to 26 emerging markets and almost 10 low-income countries as a result of the crisis, but then has come down so that, you know, by this tally, there are about maybe five to seven uh, of these emerging markets and low-income countries that lost market access as a result of this crisis and still have not regained it. And CA is what this means with respect to policy. So the left chart is a, a very rough approximation of fiscal policy response. The reason why I'm saying very rough is that this is just the cyclically adjusted primary balance. So it's supposed to take out, and it, it's a projection for the whole year, IMF projections for the whole year. So this is supposed to take out the effect of the cycle. Um, on the other hand, most of this is driven by the revenue uh, side, by automatic stabilizers, as much as by discretionary uh, expenditure. Uh, and so uh, what you see is, first of all, a pretty big um, expected uh, expansion for emerging for advanced economies. That's the first bar. Uh, but then you also have a significantly smaller but still um, significant uh, expansion on average uh, of emerging markets. And, and the main point here is that this is atypical. So in the global financial crisis, that's the red dots, you had much smaller responses, uh, particularly in emerging markets. The bars over here, further to the right, show that there's a lot of heterogeneity um, with respect to the type of country. So this anti-cyclical response has been particularly large for fuel uh, exporters because they had, by and large, the buffers. It has been much, much smaller for high-debt countries that did not have the fiscal space to do that. And then on the right chart, you see uh, that monetary policy responses have also been pretty much in line with what we have seen in advanced economies. So you have had easing across the board and from these red dots that show how the same countries reacted uh, during the, great, uh, the global financial crisis, you see that this is not typical. So during the global financial crisis, most of these countries actually were not able to ease, but this time uh, they were. 
Now, my second point. Uh, so this is sort of, in a sense, a good news story, a story of resilience and, and in a sense, you know, financial markets doing the job they're supposed to do. Uh, but, you know, I, I hasten to add some caveats. Uh, and, and so my second point is that you should not derive too much comfort from these facts for the next phase of the crisis for three reasons. First, you know, these favorable financial conditions are extremely fragile. So why are they there? Well, they are there mostly because of this extraordinary easing by central banks in advanced countries, particularly by the Fed, right? So you can see a direct link between uh, Fed statements, Fed actions, and issuance by uh, emerging markets. And so that might go away. It might go away for several reasons, because central banks turn more contractionary in advanced countries, because commodity prices uh, drop some more or because market sentiment towards emerging markets switches. The second point is that even if financial conditions were to be unchanged, in some sense, emerging markets have largely used the room they had to borrow at this point, right? So this is, again, very country-specific. Some countries still have room to borrow. Others have pretty much exhausted it. But this will not go on, right? Rather, just because it happened in the last three months doesn't mean that it will necessarily continue as fiscal space is exhausted. And then the third and most worrisome point is that, of course, you know, as this crisis either persists or as it changes longer-term fundamentals, potential growth rates, right, demand, relative demand, tourism is a big one, right? commodities, all these things really hit the ability of emerging markets to repay their debts, many countries could become uh, insolvent. And so how do we address these three problems? So the way I would think about it is that the first two problems can be addressed essentially by a substitution of, of market lending through official lending, particularly IMF lending, and some of that has occurred already, not very much. These loans, IMF loans that we've had were to many countries, but they were small. The really worrisome bit is the third problem, which probably cannot be addressed uh, through IMF lending because it may not be fixed simply by some form of fiscal adjustment and reform. And so this is what I personally work on and what sort of keeps me up at night. Roughly speaking, there were about a dozen low-income countries, emerging markets that were already in default or in the deep debt crisis before the crisis. We've already seen this number go up by roughly three to five, depending on how you count them. I would expect a further rise. And then the problem is how are we going to deal with it? So... So there are three basic ways. You can restructure debts, you can go for high inflation, you can go for some form of capital controls combined with financial repression. You know, I tend to think the best approach is the first, uh, clean debt restructurings. But um, the question is whether we have a system in place that does that. The answer to that question is, by and large, yes, but it could be tested if we see many of these cases at the same time. Sorry for taking so long. Thank you, Jeremy. You delivered some good news, although you uh, hedged your bets toward the end. Uh, much food for thought there, and I'm sure we will return to some of these very important issues in the second round. Um, uh, Jeremy overstepped his limit a little bit, so please, other speakers, don't infer from that. Um, we should all do the same. Um, but um, without further ado, Anne, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Just very quickly, I'd like to rebound to uh, to a point uh, that Jeromin made uh, around access to, to market, because indeed there was a sudden stop, but there was an immediate extraordinary recovery. 
And I would like also to illustrate it by two points. Actually, we saw a lot of uh, countries that were going to the market, but very interestingly, most of the people who were interested to buy their PayPal were Asian accounts. And actually, Chinese and Taiwanese accounts who basically came in massively, while this was not something that happened before the crisis. So this, you know, if you hadn't asked me to bet about it, I wouldn't have betted about this move, basically. This is, of course, linked with the fact that there is an enormous amount of cash available in the system, which investors have to invest and that they want to invest. And basically, at some point, you know, they consider that it was safe again to come back indeed to the market and to invest their money. There another sign, and I hate those 100 years bonds because I just believe that they don't make sense. Uh, but again, you know, there were so many proposals from investors and the largest one uh, to, that were knocking on the door of country basically saying, hey, do you want to issue 1 billion 100 years? And this kind of like came up very rapidly after the sudden stop, kind of like three weeks or four weeks after the end of the sudden stop, which kind of like usually when you have a 100 year bond, I mean, the, the, what the sign is that it shows confidence. To me, the sign is, is, is madness, but, but fine. <laughs> it's a sign of, of some confidence uh, about, the, about the credit. And it came back very, very rapidly, not just for kind of like AA issuers, but also for kind of like less rated uh, issuers. So this is indeed to show, to Yeromin's point, both the amazing recovery that we had had in the capital market and availability, but also its volatility because it's all, all available, then not available, then all available. Then. So, in fact, it's something that can indeed disappear very rapidly or reappear. So how safe it is, is, is not clear at all. And that's the reason why uh, I think we, I want to make actually two, two, two very, very clear points. First is when we think about financing this crisis, we also need to bear in mind the levels of debt that we had pre-crisis. Because actually, if we were starting from zero debt, I mean, we would have a very different conversation, right? But we already inherited a situation whereby countries were much more indebted uh, than previously in the previous crisis. Actually, if you make it rough, I mean, the indebtedness level have doubled since the crisis of 2008. So just saying that double or triple, so, I mean, this is not a measure in itself. The whole question is to which purpose? And if it's the purpose is productive, I mean, this is something that can be, uh, you know, considered as a good purpose. But not all of it was as productive as you would want it to be. So actually, people are and countries are entering into this, this new cycle, either more fragile because with higher debt level, or uh, with kind of like already almost unmanageable debt level. And, 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 and Jeremy mentioned some numbers, and clearly there is much more than the three to five that we can count on. I mean, we see much more, much, much more coming. I mean, it's just a question of, of time, unfortunately, whereby this will, this will happen. And another thing to bear in mind is also which debt are we talking about? Because, you know, there, there is some debt that we don't really know about, which is, you know, I, I'm calling it not the invisible debt, but the debt that is not 100% transparent. So this debt is typically, people like to talk about debt with China, which we would like to have much more transparency about. And this topic is an absolute topic that we need and that people are, are working to address, but we can do much more on this. I just want to, to make a point here, for example, that rating agency, for example, sometimes do rate country without having had the documentation of the Chinese loan that a country has uh, with, with China. So actually they do, they have 
an amount, but they have not seen the contract for confidentiality reason. So somehow, some assessment of the risk that they are making and the, the risk, of course, that market participants are taking is not 100% aware of actually what's the, the actual debt of the country. So this is something that, you know, we should be mindful of. And this is something that we should try to correct because we may actually run into some, you know, credit events that we are not going to be very, very happy about. And the other point, of course, is all related to SOE debt. And this is also very important. While in some countries, SOE debt is rather transparent. You can, you know, kind of like see which amount it is. Some countries are very creating accounting-wise, and this is a case also in Europe, not to take this debt really properly into account in their own ratio. So this is the kind of like hidden debt uh, that is not counted, if you, if you want. But actually, and this was the case in some of the emerging markets that we are working with, uh, some of them knew, of course, that they have SOEs, but we are not really able to have a quick update of the business plans of those SOEs during the crisis. So actually, don't 100% yet know what will be the amount that they will have to provide to those SOEs in order to help them through the crisis. So uh, this also is a, a hidden or kind of like not measured yet type of debt that actually can have a huge impact because, uh, and we can name uh, several countries that with very large SOEs, whereby it means either doubling almost of the of the debt the way it is counted right now, or at least a significant uh, a significant increase. So this is something that 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 is also very important. Lastly, what also this crisis has shown is how much domestic market were very important. Because obviously, uh, and, and, and the IMF did, did an amazing job by kind of like providing immediate assistance to countries, and this was very much necessary to, to do so. But actually, the whole process of discussions also with creditors show that private creditors were kind of like more reluctant to kind of like have agreements around restructurings, basically. So it shows, it shows two questions. First, the importance of knowing who holds your debt. And this is something that certainly we can also and we should improve. And the second is when you go international, of course, you know, this is a good diversification, but sometimes it's better to go domestic and to also kind of like manage your currency risk in order to make sure that you do not, do not aggravate your crisis. So I actually uh, wanted to make those points to put things in context in the sense of we, we are working from higher debt level and we're working also with moving parts on top of a moving crisis because none of us knows if there will be a second or third phase or so on. So it makes things pretty fragile, which means that, you know, we, we need to kind of like stay very focused and rigorous around all those aspects if we want to treat them well. Thank you very much, Anne-Laure. Those are very important points. Um, particularly, if I had to pick one, the SOE issue is absolutely key. Um, if I think of Mexico, hard to think of Mexican government debt without thinking of Pemex, of course. And that's one example of many uh, throughout the world. Let's move on um, to uh, Professor Panitza, my friend Hugo, who I believe will um, change continents and will take us to the uh, discussion in Europe. Hugo, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Andres. Yes, I'll move to Europe. Today I got to talk about advanced economies. But before saying that, uh, with my partner in crime, Simeon, we have a book which focuses on uh, developing countries, which will come out on Monday. And Andres authored one chapter and Anlor another one. So just using this opportunity to advertise. But let me, I prepare some slides. 
I think this is timely. Today there was a um, uh, today there was a meeting uh, of a member country of the European Union to to discuss the the recovery fund. So I thought that I would talk a little bit uh, about this. Um, you know. Many countries, my own country, Italy, uh, enter the crisis with very high levels of debt. And, you know, the fund uh, is expecting these levels of debt to, to go even higher. So here in green, you have 2019. In red, the, the expectation to 2021. And my feeling is that this expectation uh, is optimistic. And this might uh, limit uh, the ability of this country to respond to the crisis. So here I'm quoting, uh, I hope I'm not quoting him wrong, a uh, great minister of finance, uh, who at some point said something along these lines so that if you want to be Keynesian, you have to be Keynesian, uh, not only in bad times, you also have to be Keynesian in good times. And, and, and this graph sort of shows this point that was made by Andres, that countries that entered the crisis um, with lower levels of debt, we're able, uh, are expected to be able to la run larger primary um, deficits uh, next year, which is exactly this point. You know, you, you were Keynesian before, you, you can be uh, Keynesian now. Uh, so so uh, this is good, but you know, uh, now we have a big problem and the idea of the recovery fund uh, is to try to help somehow countries which uh, were not so Keynesian and now are facing uh, some problem in, in financing uh, uh, the recovery. So the, the, the main points, uh, sorry. So the, the ideas, so the plans was, was being discussed today. Uh, there is a proposal uh, by the commission uh, which is based on some discussion that was uh, between uh, President uh, Macron and and, uh, and the Chancellor uh, Merkel, and the idea would be a plan of uh, 750 billion. <clears throat> about 500 billions uh, would be grants, a little bit of guarantees. 250 billions of uh, of loans, uh, disbursed over a period of three to five years, and funded with uh, uh, bonds issued by the European Union's uh, long-term bonds. Uh, which will be repaid over 30 years. And, um, and the allocation of these funds, of the grants, um, uh, will be based on, on two criteria. One will be redistribution. So uh, countries with uh, uh, lower income per capita will get more money. And the other one would be insurance uh, with the idea that countries which were... Uh, impacted more by the virus uh, will get uh, more money. So, so, that's, so that's the idea of the plan. So there, there, there is a version on, on the website of the, uh, of the commission. Today there was a discussion, and uh, so this is just a headline of uh, a Reuters headline uh, just of one hour ago. So uh, this was pessimistic, so it seems that there is we're still far from agreement. There were some headlines which were a bit more optimistic, but anyway, the, the discussion is going to continue in, in July. Now, when people uh, discuss this plan, there is usually, um, you know, it, it's a uh, it's little bit like in Hamilton, right? It's my favorite musical. And there is a song in Hamilton, which is Cabinet Battle Number One, in which there's this discussion that Hamilton wants to mutualize the debt. And you have Jefferson that says, you know, we don't want to pay for that. So in this case, 
Jefferson is one of the frugal four. Uh, so this is the, the prime minister of, of the Netherlands. And then, you know, you have the, you know, the Hamilton uh, group. And here is, I love this, this thing from the Financial Times with uh, Merkel in, in the place of Hamilton uh, here. So that's the traditional discussion. But I want to use my uh, last uh, two minutes uh, to say that there is also another view uh, which sort of says, so, so the traditional view is the frugal four versus the, you know, the commission. But some people uh, have also claimed that the problem with the, this recovery fund is that it's not big enough. So that's, it's, it's not enough. So it's not big enough. Uh, it's going to happen too late. So, you know, the problem is now and this thing, you know, this disbursement will be starting in 2021 if everything goes well. Uh, it's all public spending and not tax cuts. And, you know, and some countries, again, my own countries, among others, uh, uh, has not been uh, able in the past to fully absorb uh, EU contribution. Uh, will the funds be used well? And so at the end, the criticism is that, you know, um, we wanted euro bonds, which would alleviate credit constraints. Uh, but we got this stuff, which is, uh, you know, it's not enough. So... So yeah, I, I thought that I could write a Hamiltonian, you know, like when we solve the Hamiltonian, we usually assume that there is some uh, budget constraint, which is the transversality condition, but you can borrow uh, as much as you want, uh, as long as you satisfy that. Uh, so the point that um, this plan uh, will not allow us to uh, maximize a Hamiltonian under the assumption there are uh, no credit constraints. So this is the standard criticism. Uh, let me, um, I'll try to stay within the time. Let me conclude with my view. I think this criticism, uh, you know, there is some truth in them, but you know, uh, the plan uh, is not so small. Again, these are very back of the envelope calculation based on, on the plan, but you know, some countries uh, are getting, uh, you know, a large share of GDP. If if the plan is implemented according to plan, so you know, 15% of GDP, even if it's over a period of three to five years, is not so small. Even a large country like uh, Italy would get something like uh, 6% of GDP, uh, which is not so bad. Uh, so, and there is an issue that again, countries like Italy, uh, maybe it's not coming now, but you know, they might have uh, because of the high level of debt. Uh, uh, to implement, we may not have to implement uh, restrictive policies down the road. So whatever, you know, whatever it comes will be of some help. So, uh, so I think there are other issues here we can discuss later. But uh, my view that this is an important plan. Maybe it's not uh, everything you wanted, but it's uh, it's a good step uh, in the right direction. So I close here. Thank you, Hugo. Um... Lots of uh, food for thought there and questions that we will return to um, in the second round. Well, uh, if Hugo is right, uh, Bulgaria is the net uh, winner of um, this move. And uh, we have a Bulgarian next uh, on our list, uh, who I believe will talk about this and uh, also the role of the private sector in the crisis. Simeon, the floor is yours. Thank you, Andres. Yes, it's very gratifying to see Bulgaria potentially benefiting quite a lot from uh, European solidarity. I remember in the last crisis, as you as you said, Andres, we were both finance ministers and we had similar discussions. Solidarity then was not as forthcoming uh, as it seems to be uh, now. 
So Europe was quite slow to react to uh, many of the topics that we are discussing uh, now. So hopefully these lessons uh, are learned and we do see this solidarity, but also see it quickly in Europe, but also around the world. I want to spend uh, uh, my time discussing actually the last point of Jeremy's uh, presentation, which is solvency or the worries about uh, sovereign solvency. Uh, and I will uh, draw the connection between sovereign solvency and solvency in the corporate sector of, uh, of countries around uh, the world, where a lot of my uh, research and policy experience has been. And I'd like to make two points around uh, uh, this uh, solvency debate. The first point is that, uh, to a large extent, sovereign solvency depends on the ability of the private sector in every country to recover from the crisis, to be solvent itself. And there have been, over the last month or two, a number of uh, estimates, calculations, including uh, by myself and colleagues at uh, the London School of Economics, of what the solvency picture post-COVID may look in uh, particularly in emerging markets and developing countries. Uh, and as I mentioned already, both at the sovereign uh, level, but also at the corporate level, there was quite a lot of indebtedness to begin with. So countries after the previous financial crisis, but also firms have borrowed quite uh, substantially, hopefully for productive uses. Um, but uh, the fact is that they entered uh, with large debts in this crisis. Crisis hits, COVID hits, so as a result, a number of companies, just if you look at the technical uh, aspects of it, became insolvent over, overnight. And uh, as all of the speakers so far have uh, mentioned, governments have uh, used very expensive fiscal policies in a number of directions to help uh, the corporate sector. Probably the most uh, um, uh, the most uh, significant of these efforts has been various versions of job retention uh, uh, schemes put in place. Um, there was actually learning from uh, the previous crisis, particularly in Europe from Germany, the so-called Kurzarbeit scheme, basically um, allowing workers to stay in their jobs and the government uh, paying substantial um, share their, uh, of their salaries and social uh, security. Yaromin was part of uh, the economic political debate in Germany at the time that this was set up. Um, I remember it was fairly controversial a decade or so ago. Now every country uh, in Europe and many other countries have adopted a version of this uh, German uh, scheme. Uh, across the board. And there were additional bank guarantees, there were um, tax deferrals, uh, and in some cases, waiving certain taxes for the corporate sector. These were probably the three most prominent uh, efforts in the last three to four months, in which every government around the world uh, has tried to help its corporate sector. The issue is, and I come to the point of solvency, that this costs enormous amounts of money. So it is not possible over time, even for the richest countries. We have some numbers from the United States, from the United Kingdom, from Germany, from France. These programs cost a lot, even in advanced economies. And while advanced economies, as the other speakers have mentioned, can carry this for some time because they may have fiscal space, but also they're borrowing at essentially zero cost. Um, that's not the case for most emerging markets, and that's certainly not the case for developing uh, countries. So they're already uh, hitting uh, 
their fiscal uh, constraints with this additional borrowing. And as a number of the speakers already mentioned, many of these countries already were at uh, the end of their fiscal abilities even before this uh, crisis. So therefore, what to do? What to do to ensure um, solvency of a large part of the corporate uh, sector across countries? So two points. Um, uh, the first point is that clearly countries from rich to poor countries, they cannot sustain the current level of across the board for the whole corporate sector, uh, financing a large uh, part of the wage bill, uh, and then essentially also serving as uh, a bank of last uh, resort for bank guarantees and other bank schemes. There has to be some... Uh, uh, some level of targeting. So whether it's a sectoral level, and we're now starting to have some uh, uh, data available across countries of which sectors are most affected. And we do see now a number of schemes uh, arising which are sector specific. So we know about uh, tourism, we know about transport, we are now starting to see from around the world some of the more um, heavy um, Household uh, things like furniture, for example, as a sector is very uh, affected. White uh, goods are quite affected. So governments already have, in other words, uh, some available data to think of uh, targeting their uh, efforts at the sectoral level. In the past, that has, of course, been done, but not at the level, not at the massive scale that it may be necessary now. Um, so, so we need to think of how this is done, what is the right uh, channels through um, where this can be uh, effectively uh, targeted. And I think this is one of the most significant challenges ahead of, uh, ahead of governments. In addition to sectoral, of course, uh, we already mentioned SOEs and the fact that they may have uh, in some countries uh, served as buffers, but also that they themselves have very significant uh, financing and debt uh, issues. But we've seen governments across the globe really um, provide some extra financing uh, or, or other uh, benefits to some large firms, whether it's large SOEs or whether it's large uh, uh, airlines and so on. So governments, generally speaking, know how to deal with uh, large firms. But once you go to a massive number of, let's say, mid-sized firms, Schemes are yet to be developed on, a, as I mentioned, uh, targeted, but also consistent level, given, as I mentioned, that there is still significant uncertainty of how long this crisis is going to be and whether there is going to be second wave uh, and so on. So in other words, my first point uh, is finishing with this comment of we need targeting for corporate uh, uh, assistance, corporate response. We have some ideas and certainly a data emerging on this uh, targeting, but it seems to be at scales that we have not seen uh, uh, before. Uh, and therefore, a lot more thought needs to be put uh, into this. And uh, Ugo presented the European scheme. Uh, notice that uh, it does... Uh, have some very nice features, but does not have targeting. So, so that needs to be developed uh, in the future. And my second uh, address and uh, shorter point is that as we uh, think of this targeting, as we think of how to help continue helping the corporate sector and households as well, uh, perhaps as former finance ministers, you and I, but more generally governments and international institutions need to think of what the next tax regime of countries around the world is going to be, particularly with the corporate sector, but maybe also with, um, 
with households in the sense that a number of countries around the world depend on direct taxes, corporate income tax, uh, individual uh, personal income taxes. For the next few years, these taxes are going to be near zero because, as I mentioned, solvency in the corporate sector is uh, is an issue. There is not going to be much uh, profitability, certainly this year, next year, maybe the year after. Uh, and therefore, as we are spending a lot, as governments are spending a lot, they're also not getting as much in terms of tax receipts, tax receipts and they're not likely to get uh, if their system depends on direct uh, taxes. So there already is some discussion, uh, and we saw this in the past crisis, where a number of European countries shifted more and more towards indirect taxes, value-added tax, uh, customs duties, um, excise taxes, which gets us to the green economy, and maybe this is a possibility to go more in that uh, uh, in that direction and uh, tax uh, uh, oil and gas and uh, so on in a number of developing countries as well. I'll leave, I'll leave you with this point, but it's not only the current solvency that we need to think about in the next few months, but we also have a bigger fiscal challenge, not just on the spending side, but also on the... Um, uh, on the tax side of how do we have a robust tax systems in the next two to three years. So um, once we recover from the crisis, um, we actually have, uh, as Ugo again mentioned, we're Keynesian then uh, as well. I'll stop here. Thank you, Simeon. Uh, glad to uh, hear from a fellow former finance minister. Completely agree that the tax issue is gigantic, probably not for tomorrow, but for the day after. Not uh, fashionable to speak about tax increases when we're in the middle of a crisis, but uh, you're absolutely right. We have to be thinking ahead, and that will be the next issue on the agenda when the crisis begins to abate. All right, I'm going to return now to Jeremy. We're going to do a quick round of questions, and I will remind uh, the speakers at this, this time around um, we, uh, we're looking for shorter answers so that we will have at least um, half an hour to uh, do Q&A with uh, the audience. So, Jeremy, I have two short and related questions to you. Uh, you were quite gung-ho, and I share your optimism that uh, unlike uh, what happened 10 years ago, a lot of EM governments have been able to tap, tap the markets and do so pretty, uh, pretty generously, uh, not, in, not in March, but then in April uh, and in May. But that's the governments. If I look at private flows, um, in fact, many have been going in the, in, in the other direction. So if I could, wanted to look at the same numbers, but in a somewhat less uh, optimistic way, I'd say the governments are drawing down their credit lines because they know they will need money down the road. The private sector is, in fact, getting its money out of EMs. So the net flows are zero or negative. And uh, once governments have drawn down the credit lines, the credit lines will be out. Uh, they will be exhausted. And um, a year or two from now, maybe six months from now, the situation will look a bit more dire than it does today. So that's sort of the first half of my question. The second half follows directly from, from what you said uh, toward the end. Namely, if at some point the flow of capital uh, by, uh, by private agents uh, in private markets ceases, then um, the world's eyes will turn toward the IMF. Uh, and, you know, if I remember your boss uh, is on the record as having said that uh, the world, uh, the emerging market world needs about 2.5 trillion and the fund would probably lend about a trillion in the, in the best of all possible circumstances. 
So where do we find the remaining 60% of that amount uh, that the managing director identified? Uh, and what, what kinds of uh, creative thinking are going around in Washington that maybe you can share with us? Over to you, Jeremy. Uh, thank you. So, um, you know, I, I take your point um, on that the, the private sector has done less well uh, in uh, emerging markets than uh, so far the official sector, uh, in part because uh, of uh, lesser uh, less uh, less access to uh, finance, but even there, there's of course enormous heterogeneity. You know, when you have large corporations in emerging markets, as as you know, some of them can actually borrow at more favorable conditions than their than their own governments. But I, I as I said, I did not really want to give you an optimistic v vision for the future. This was a statement of what has happened in the last few months, which frankly surprised me, um, and. Um, it is fragile uh, for the reasons I tried to explain. And so then the second part of your question, what, what could the IMF do? So, so first of all, what the IMF has already done is we have provided, I think, 69 uh, emergency assistance requests, uh, about 25 billion, which shows uh, to you that on average, these are quite small uh, requests. And then, of course, we have the big money, uh, which goes to f four Latin American countries on a precautionary basis, including yours, uh, the, through the flexible credit line. And that's, I think, it has committed at this point maybe over 100 billion. Um, so we have about 1 trillion in financial firepower. Of that 1 trillion, about 250 billion, if you count everything up, is committed. So we have about three quarters is, is free. Now, on these... I'm not sort of a huge fan of these financing gap calculations, so we do them at the fund, and so the 2.5 trillion number is the very first one that that we did and that the managing director quoted. You have to remember that this is before you even count the reserves of countries themselves, and basically it assumes zero market access, right? So these are really uh, effectively the financing needs given expected capital outflows and given expected current account de deficits, which of course have gone up. Uh, a lot. Uh, it doesn't tell you how it is met. Uh, a lot of it, most of it, is met from uh, domestic sources. And and so there have been more recent calculations since the 2.5 uh, trillion. And whether they give you a number that we could not meet through our own reserves. So that, that original number, by the way, um, led to a residual financing gap. I think of something like 800 trillion and then, you know, we could meet some of that. So, it, it, I mean, in the end, what, what we would have to meet is, is quite a big law. If, uh, uh, wh whether we are going to be able to meet these requests at this point is wildly uncertain and depends particularly on the assumptions that you make about the persistence of the shock. So if you, if you assume that the shock is more persistent, you get more pessimistic numbers. You get bigger numbers than the original 2.5 trillion. But again, you know, this excludes uh, sources of financing that are, actually, that are actually there. At this point, I, if anything, I find it slightly surprising that we haven't been asked for more money. <clears throat> so we have been asked by lots and lots of countries. But the emerging markets have been quite shy at knocking at the door, right, with the notable exception of the four Latin American countries that got the uh, FCLs. And the question is whether this will change. Of course, my interpretation for why this was the case is because 
financial market conditions have been very favorable, and so they have had less less need. That might change, and I, I think that for the foreseeable future, we we are ready. We we can uh, cope with it, uh, and then you know at some point we may need to ask for some more money, but we are not uh, at that point uh, yet. Thank you, Jeremy. You've lifted my spirits um, a little bit, <laughs> but uh, clearly there's a lot to worry about still. Um, um, and you, you painted a fairly dire picture in your first set of remarks, uh, pointing out that uh, we start from a situation of, of high indebtedness, uh, and on top of it, uh, some of the debt may not be uh, on the table if you add it all up, but even bigger than uh, some of the headline numbers suggest. So I want to uh, ask you two things. First of all, what is the room for debt forgiveness or debt reduction or, 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 or debt restructuring exercises, which is something that you, you, you specialize in? And secondly, given that starting point and given the difficulties with debt restructurings, what room is there to be optimistic? Uh, what, what, what else can governments do so that the mood in the markets will lift and uh, we can look forward to a rosier figure, uh, future? Sure. So, so I'm always very optimistic. So I, I always think that even with the bad news or with a crisis, you can turn things around. So I actually hope that this crisis will be an opportunity about this. But answering to your question, uh, clearly, I mean, there are the first uh, forgiveness have already uh, happened, or the first restructuring have already happened, which which was were done by uh, IMF on some of its debt, and also uh, the, the multis on some of of their debt, and also on some of the bilateral. This is a whole Paris Club type of initiative, uh, whereby 18 countries have already kind of like been granted uh, the the G20 uh, agreement for 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 a lack of a better term around this, which is basically kind of like giving them room to maneuver until the end of the year on interests uh, that were due during this uh, this period. However, in this agreement, there are a couple of things that kind of like uh, uh, still need to happen and that shows also some difficulty in order to restructure. Uh, just on the Paris Club, 30 countries also asked uh, for this initiative. They will certainly all be granted this initiative. So this, I think, is something in process that is something that is a positive thing and that is happening. However, at the same time, and China has said that they were discussing because, as you know, China is not a member of the Paris Club. So now what's happening right now as we speak are negotiations between countries and China. And that's where I think we all need to be extremely careful and mindful of what's going on there because we may and we should use this opportunity to ask for more transparency, as I stated before, around China debt. So I believe it's absolutely crucial because the last thing that we want is the new Chinese debt or the restructured Chinese debt right now to be even more constraining to some countries. And we know that some things are happening about this debt with collateral and things that, again, you know, we do not capture in all of, of our database and knowledge. So this is something that we should be very rigorous uh, around doing. But if we push for transparency and if we, you know, this is something that can actually improve overall, but we need to be very firm on this. And I think this is now the time to do it because those discussions are happening as we speak. 
there are also two other categories uh, that also one needs to address. Of course, those are the development banks. And for the moment, the development banks have been pretty shy in taking part uh, in the initiative of the G20. This was not compulsory, of course, and not part of G20. It was kind of like, you know, they were, uh, you know, invited <laughs> to be to be uh, joining this initiative. Uh, but actually, uh, because it has consequences also on their rating, for example, I mean, they're very shy in doing those things. So this one is also something things that we need to be working on because we obviously need the development bank to be very involved both uh, in this initiative but also in the financing of new projects or ongoing projects that are absolutely vital for the states be it the infrastructure in Africa being I mean those projects are vital should continue to go on at very attractive rates and of course there is the overall debate with the private investors where there were a lot of initiatives the IIF was very kind of like taking the lead on trying to find some solution there but as always i want to say with the private sector you have some intention but then the result isn't sometimes i would say disappointing right so it looks like we while we wanted a frame and while certainly a frame would have made a lot of sense we're certainly gonna end up usually where we end up which is something that is again very bilateral in the sense of one country negotiating with its creditors which you know okay if this is a way to go let's let's do it but we need to be very careful that these negotiations happen in the interest of the countries and that actually the public money that was directed so efficiently and so immediately, in particular by IMF and, and, and others, is not in fact synthetically to the benefit of the, of the private sector. Everybody needs to make an effort there. And certainly debt that are at seven, eight, nine percent. I mean, you know, those debt are high coupon debt, and we need to kind of like also do something about it in order to kind of like make sure that they do not wait too high on the balance sheet of, 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 of the state. And it's very important because some countries were almost dissuaded to take part in the G20 initiative because of, for example, Moody's, uh, you know, reading of the situation whereby you knew you were going to get a negative outlook if you took part in the discussion. So this, those type of things need to be very much taken in place because if then a country has a feeling they lose access to capital markets by going to those initiatives, you actually have nothing happening. So we need coordination there. Sorry, I was slightly too long about it. There we go. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Um, in the interest of time, we're going to move directly to Ugo. And I have um, a question about the European initiative, Ugo. Who is paying the bill? You gave us a very nice uh, chart in which everybody was getting money. But if everybody's getting money, somebody must be contributing the money. So those are clearly gross flows you showed us, not, uh, not uh, net flows. And related to that, my, my colleague and friend uh, Eric Bergloff asks through the chat, um, why are the monies in Europe not allocated in uh, proportion to the impact of COVID? Um, uh, I, I'm not quite sure what the criterion has been, but it's not evident that they're COVID related. If you could address both of those questions in two minutes or less, I'd be really <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so, so the first question, that's you know that's always at the core of the discussion of the European Union and you know and the frugal force says you know we're paying and we don't want to pay or or, or whatever, and, and strangely enough, the populist even in a country in Italy like Italy where w whichever way you compute it's going to benefit from this initiative you know these guys are we are paying too much for it. Now that question is difficult because if you uh, if you think that countries are going to pay um, you know. Uh, 
this, this, this expense will be repaid over a period of 30 years. And how much country will be paid will be a proportion of their GDP. We would need to know how much they will grow. So maybe Bulgaria now uh, is getting a lot. Its GDP is small uh, compared to European GDP. But if just purely for uh, convergence region, reasons, uh, Bulgaria is going to grow uh, faster than Germany, uh, we will end up paying a much larger share than what it's you know, its share of GDP right now. So the first thing that we need to compute uh, to, to keep into account now that poor countries, if they grow rapidly, will pay a higher share. Uh, the second thing that we need to uh, keep into account is that uh, this is not a zero-sum game. I mean, so if, uh, you know, if Italy does better, Italian households will be, buy, will be buying more Volkswagen. So there are, there are spillovers and, and that needs to be uh, keep into account. The, the third point is that, uh, you know, is the, it's not even the R minus G, it's the, it's the nominal growth minus the nominal versus the nominal interest rate. Uh, this money will be borrowed at a very low uh, nominal interest rate. Uh, nominal growth will be higher. So there will sort of, you know, so the, the amount of that you pay as a share of GDP, uh, you know, is going to go down. And finally, even uh, a part of, of these things are, are pure loans, but even, uh, even in the grants, if each country, if a country were to get a grant which is the same uh, as what it will pay in the future, if this country uh, has an interest rate like Italy, which is higher than the interest rate uh, which is charged by, um, you know, which is... We, which is charged to the, to the EU, uh, the country will benefit, even if there is no uh, net grant. So at the end, uh, you know, clearly the richer country will bear more of a cost than the poorer country. But at the end, uh, you know, probably the, the cost will be uh, distributed uh, among many countries. And at the end, you know, uh, everybody uh, will probably benefit from this. Uh, to Eric's question, my understanding there is a very complicated formula, which, as I said, uh, it includes two elements. One element is a redistribution element, so poorer countries are going to get more money, and and the other element is how much you were hit by the crisis. Uh, so countries which were uh, hit harder get more money. Uh, so, so that's the weighting of the two. Two, I, I guess you know, if you're not done it this way, um, probably you know, all the money would go to Spain and Italy. Thank you, Hugo. Um, Simeon, we move on to you. This is the last of my questions. You talked about restructuring and the corporate world, and um, it could well be, as several speakers have pointed out, that uh, if the crisis is long. Um, Rather than financing uh, firms as they are, we need to finance restructuring towards some other state of the world, which is different. And this is particularly true, of course, in the very hard hit sectors of hospitality, transport, other services, etc. If this is so, if we're looking at a different world, what else should governments be doing and how do we rethink these government support programs so that we're not simply giving money out to companies that are not viable in the long run? but uh, instead facilitating that very necessary restructuring. Indeed, Andres. Um, 
typically when we think of uh, financial crisis, especially we remember Joseph Schumpeter and his uh, views of creative destruction, that crisis may be a good time for um, new firms, new ideas to come up uh, and some of the older inefficient uh, businesses perhaps to have less of a market share. This crisis, however, is so significant, so massive, that uh, at least the preliminary research around it suggests that it has kind of an effect across the board. So everybody is worse off, uh, at least initially. Um, but you're right. I think we need to think of what's the economy after this crisis going to look uh, like. And I should say that several countries are already thinking of that. So literally in the past two weeks, uh, first Portugal, then Austria, then the United Kingdom in uh, in Europe, and about uh, another dozen or so mostly East Asian countries uh, have come up with what they call future funds. So in other words, not just to over across the board uh, help the corporate sector, but worry about uh, new, smaller, more innovative firms. So usually what these funds have in mind is that they uh, uh, say we're only going to focus on companies that were established in the last three years, let's say, that are in particular more uh, innovative sectors. And we are not going just to spend money on the wage bill, which is typically what uh, the other schemes that I mentioned uh, for old companies are. But we're also going to uh, give some uh, loan guarantees and even grants for essentially research and development for you to invest uh, uh, better in uh, in future activities. Uh, this is very new, but I think it will spread very quickly because many governments, many uh, public officials are wondering exactly that question. If not tourism, or at least if not in this form, what is the human capital that we have and how can it be uh, redeployed? And this is why in my previous comments, I started with the sectoral breakdown. I think some sectors are clearly going to be different this year, but even the years beyond that. And this is an opportunity to rethink of where things are going, but also what do you have as investment of a country and human capital. Human capital, as you know, is very difficult to build up quickly, so you need to um, to make do with what you have. But the future funds that a number of countries are uh, establishing, Thailand has one, Korea has established one uh, uh, as well, I think are the way to go. We need to think of the future entrepreneurs, not just the companies that exist today. Thank you. Thank you, Simeon. Uh, I'm glad to see that we have about 25 minutes uh, left of this um, event, so uh, plenty of time to channel some of the questions that our very numerous audience has been sending our way. And I'm going to begin one with one question from Luis Oganes uh, from Peru. Uh, and Luis says, um, the reason G20 Paris Club offered to low-income countries was that they suspend debt service for six months. And uh, the G20 also called upon the private sector to do the same thing. But uh, surprisingly, or maybe not, many countries, uh, particularly the uh, emerging countries that have been, been, might have been tempted to go into debt uh, service suspensions, have refused to go that way because they worry about stigma, they worry about uh, market access, they worry about uh, what the credit rating agencies uh, might say. So um, do you think, and this could be for Jeremy or for Anne or for anybody who wants to take it, do you think that um, the preservation of market access, in fact, is going to trump any desire to lower uh, debt burdens and as a result, uh, 
that's not the way to go. And maybe other ways forward, like private, you know, partial debt guarantees would be more fruitful as a way of keeping these governments and these countries solvent. Who would like to take that? Jeremy. Um, uh, and Anne, okay, we have two hands, so uh, you can both take it uh, and be brief uh, if at all possible. Okay, so, so first on the facts, um, it's actually not true that most emerging markets um, members, and there are not too many, right, in the IDA group uh, have, have um, not taken this. So in, in total, we, I checked the, the most recent numbers that 37 countries have formally applied. Uh, so that's more the, uh, than half of the applicable uh, of the of the eligible countries. You have to subtract from the maximum of 73 about 15, 20 countries that really have minimal debts uh, to uh, bilateral creditors. So for them, it's it's really not worth applying. And then after you do that, you are left with some countries that are still unsure. And then there are indeed a couple of countries, but really just a couple that have made this argument that they don't want to apply for uh, market reputational reasons, right? But we have important uh, emerging markets in this group, like Pakistan or Nigeria, that have uh, have actually uh, applied. Now, uh, you know, on the on the question of whether this is a good thing or or a bad thing, so so I, I think. We have seen applications from the countries that really need it, uh, which is which is what matters. Um, and you know, if conditions deteriorate, I think we will get more countries. The, the question is whether the fact that the private sector has not really participated means we should be doing something fundamentally different on this. And at, at this point, I don't think so uh, because. Um, in, in effect, you have a situation where um, the private sector is not either offered an incentive to participate, nor is it really forced to participate. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's not surprising uh, that there has not been participation, except, of course, in the sense that they have continued to finance these countries, many of these countries, through, through other channels. Now, if you get into a much worse situation, you could imagine that this would would change. And then we would be basically moving out of the mode of purely voluntary uh, private sector participation and mm, towards something that is mm, resembles what the Paris Club calls comparability of treatment. So to the extent that countries want to avail themselves from official uh, debt relief or debt service suspension, private sector creditors would have to do the same. We're not in this world, and I think for, for, for you know, given how markets have reacted, it's, it's a good thing that we have not been in this world, because if we had been, we really would not have gotten uh, very many requests uh, for DSSI financing for this initiative, because then indeed the scenario that uh, our colleague from Peru was, was sketching would, would have been true, that many emerging markets would not have wanted to avail themselves for fear of of uh, destroying their relationship with the market. But this has not been uh, actually the case. So I think at this point, making this voluntary, given the re re relatively favorable market conditions was, was probably the right, uh, the right move. It, it may not be the right move in the future, depending on how conditions evolve. Thank you, Jeremy. Anne wanted to add something on this, but uh, while she has the floor, I'm also going to ask her to address the following question from Olisa Madrid-Buna, who says, um, 
given what we've learned in this episode, what changes can we expect in future debt restructuring technology? Today we have collection active, uh, sorry, collective action clauses. We have uh, natural disaster clauses. Is that enough or should we be looking at other changes in uh, debt restructuring contingencies or, 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 or ways for addressing excessive debt in the future? For sure, the collective action clause is a huge, huge, huge step forward and clearly would make uh, and makes any restructuring uh, much more easier than it was before. So this is a huge uh, step forward. Um, the, the most important thing in a debt restructuring uh, and that we need to progress much more on this is the know your investor. Because actually, well, first of all, it's very difficult because, I mean, it changes, it evolves and so on. But indeed, you need to know uh, to whom, with whom you have to negotiate. And every country that has to do this, I mean, first has to kind of like make sure that it knows uh, exactly this, that it has this database and better that it has entertained relationship with them so that they can also have a direct dialogue with them. So if there is, to me, if there is one thing to improve, it's less on a legal front where frankly lots have been done, but it's much more on, let's call it investor relation for lack of a better word front where you know the people with whom you are, you are discussing and you should be entertaining them. And actually I'm surprised about one thing that is there are, there have not been yet as many investor calls uh, from countries as one would have expected. Typically in this, and I think this is something that we should push country to do, because in this crisis, even if sometimes you don't have the answer, you can still say, okay, this is the update on the sanitary situation. This is what the measures that have been taken. And you know, you inform step by step. This also is a way to build further confidence also for private investors in order to accept if you're going to ask them to push back debt for two years or something like this, because they're part of the process. They're involved into your policy making. And I personally believe that rather than more incentive or anything of such kind, it's just common sense that would kind of like make them comfortable around your project and where you want to take your country that would kind of like make them be, uh, you know, be one of your, of your partner, basically. And just one slight sentence on what Jeromin uh, said. I, I fully agreed, of course, with all what he said. The 18 countries that have uh, for, signed the Paris Club Agreement represent 1.5 billion, just so that we also have an order of magnitude dollars. And what is important is some key countries that shifted. Typically, if you take French-speaking Africa, the fact that Ivory Coast and Senegal applied to it was very helpful because Senegal was afraid to do it alone and that Ivory Coast would have been favoritized by the market and so on. So it was also important to have key countries applying to this and that's good to have seen that there were cooperation there and that it's going to for sure push more countries to do this and kill the kind of like market arguments despite Moody's reactive negatively to this. Thank you, Anne. I am now going to go back to Europe um, and read a question from Anna Maria Pilati, who says, Europe seems to be preoccupied with its own survival and internal struggles. But this survival is very closely linked to what happens in Africa via demographics, migration, the environment, and populism. So isn't the current crisis just the right opportunity for a coordinated African Marshall Plan? Would like to take that. Ugo, maybe? Can Europe look outward, Ugo, or is it destined to just look inward? So in, in, the, in the recovery fund proposal, there is some money 
allocated uh, for, for aid uh, to, to Africa. Uh, it's not much. So I don't think it's probably enough uh, for a Marshall Plan. Uh, this would be definitely, um, you know, desirable. Uh, I'm not very optimistic, uh, given the reason that there are, um, you know, it, it, it's hard enough to create, you know, intra-European solidarity. Uh, so again, there is a little bit in the European Recovery Fund uh, to be allocated uh, as aid to Africa, uh, but it's not much money. And then, of course, there is the, the huge discussion how how to make aid effective, right? So there is a, there is a massive literature there. Um, you know, uh, money is not enough. So that's uh, sometimes maybe money could be even be bad depending how, how, how you spend it. But, um, yeah. Maybe, Andres, I can just add quickly on, on this. I've observed both uh, being part of the international institutions in Washington and then when I was part of the uh, ECOFIN uh, discussion in Europe that a lot of the discussions of help outside of the European Union, uh, not so much initially at least led by the European Commission, but by particular strong politicians. So uh, in the last couple of years, that actually has been uh, France and President Macron who has been making uh, uh, this point, particularly with regard to, um, to Africa. And there have been some initiatives that, uh, that uh, France has uh, led in that, uh, in that regard. I think the crisis only uh, accentuates the need, uh, uh, the need for that. So my guess is if something comes out, uh, the commission would more be following, but you would need the political uh, uh, leadership and it needs to come from somewhere else. And since you're in Paris and follow this, maybe you have some view? Yeah, what, what certainly needs to happen is something, I would say, less traditional of what has been done before. And the less traditional, it also certainly link with the diaspora. Uh, and, and there are many initiatives that one can take with European countries, uh, with, with the diasporas and with the flows between uh, European countries and uh, African countries. And this is certainly something that France wants to, to promote. Uh, there needs also to be said that some African countries have called upon Europe to help them around guarantees. There was a mention around partial guarantees. So typically, some African countries have basically said, can we have a fund or can we have a guarantee from Europe uh, on a given amount uh, that basically can help us borrow at a cheaper rate? So clearly, those initiatives are being floated around. The whole question is indeed to make them efficient. Uh, large amounts are needed. So how do you kind of like use them uh, appropriately? Uh, I personally believe the diaspora idea is definitely something that is long lasting and that also addresses uh, some point around migration and around demographics. Thank you very much. Um, we have time for maybe one or two more questions. Um, here's one from Paul Hannon who says, uh, Another new development is that some emerging market central banks are also doing QE. And I think the question is uh, uh, aimed at, um, at uh, Germany. Um, should they be doing this, given that interest rates in those countries are not zero like they are in uh, advanced economies? And uh, what are the risks associated with this new uh, change in policy? Jeremy, do you want to comment on that? And I'd be happy to take comments from anybody else. I think this is a fascinating question. I've been thinking about it myself, and uh, it's not obvious where one comes down. 
Yes, I, I, I agree. It's not, not obvious. I, I think the baseline response is that when, when you're in a, a crisis like this, you want to use all tools, um, and particularly on the monetary policy side, uh, because that has you know, fewer uh, long-run implication in terms of indebtedness. And now I, I'm not in a position to say whether this was justified or a good idea in all cases. I, on the motives, I think there are probably two. One is just speed of, of delivery of monetary policy stimulus through several channels. The other one, of course, is that uh, when you do this, you ensure um, that there continues to be easy access uh, of um, domestic sovereigns to local capital markets, right, to local debt markets. Uh, so just like uh, ECB interventions ensure that this is the case within the euro area, this is also true uh, for, for the local debt markets uh, of uh, some of the larger emerging economies. And, of course, these uh, debt markets have become much more important over the last decade. Now, that's one of the really big stylized facts. And so it is really not surprising that you would expect these uh, central banks to behave more like their advanced economy uh, counterparts. But I think, I think actually, Andres, you're, you're better <laughs> placed to answer that question than I am. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'll say two words about it, putting on my hat as an academic economist. I think it's a question that reminds us of how little we know in the following sense. If uh, 12 years ago, somebody had said to me that the Fed was going to quadruple the size of its balance sheet, triple the size of a monetary base and nothing would happen, I would have said that's not what the textbook allows you to do, right? So that, that, that cannot be a normal outcome. And it happened and, you know, Western civilization did not end and hyperinflation did not follow. Um, so uh, by the same token, um, what is really the dividing line that says this set of countries can do QE and this set of countries cannot do QE? Well, that's not very clear. You know, can a country like Chile or a country like Colombia or Turkey or South Africa, you know, countries that have investment grades, that have fairly deep capital markets, that have reasonably serious central banks, um, can they, can they not? Where are the limits? Um, I think uh, we will know more in a year or two, but ex ante, um, why not try at least, right? Within, within, with prudence, with some learning by doing. But uh, maybe this time around, we would learn that EMs can do what uh, advanced countries learned that they themselves could do 10 years ago. I have two questions that uh, are being asked on the future of debt. Um, um, Bern Dittman says, given the size of debt, uh, won't central banks and governments have an incentive to let inflation uh, pick up? And then uh, Creon Butler says, uh, and I'm going to ask them together because they're really two sides of the same question. Given the size of the debt, shouldn't countries be issuing more index debt to show the markets that they do not mean in the future to inflate away the value of the debt? Um, so two questions uh, arguing the opposite sides of the same issue. Anybody would like to take a crack at that? Simeon, Hugo, and... Hey, Hugo, sure. Yeah. Okay, Hugo. <laughs> yeah, right. By popular, by popular demand. So, so the, the the second question um, might be easier. Uh, and again, I it goes to something I heard you saying a long time ago, Andres. That uh, uh, maybe twenty years ago in some Lasea meeting, that when you talk with these people in Wall Street that can do you know all this complicated math, they seem to be very bad at pricing index instruments. Yeah, 
and so that's uh, <laughs> that's might be a reason why why countries don't issue uh, uh, enough index stuff. You know, so we all know the beautiful not only on index debt on you know to prices, but on index debt to GDP. We know that theoretically they're, they're beautiful, but they just uh, not there. Um, the the fact whether there's going to be inflation down the road, it's uh, I, I mean it, it's a little bit linked to the discussion before whether emerging markets should do uh, QE or not. Uh, your colleague, your LSE colleague uh, Ricardo Reis, mm-hmm. uh, has a bunch of very nice papers, and basically it says it all depends whether people think that there is fiscal backing down the road. It's, that, that's so. So that's that's all there, I guess. It's not an easy question. Yeah. I, I wanna. I, I I forgot to say something before. Uh, um, something a bit provocative before when there was this question about Europe, and it's again a former colleague of yours, uh, Andres uh, Land Pritchett, mm-hmm. which uh, he has shown uh, that you know uh, a, a wise immigration policy is much more effective than any form of aid, right? So maybe if we want to think about Africa, that would be more effective uh, uh, than, um, you know, that aid. That is provocative indeed in the current uh, (laughs) climate. Um, I I am tempted to say that we in Latin America have received many more immigrants per capita from other countries in Latin America, particularly Venezuela, than have most European countries, with the exception of Turkey. and there is no big political upheaval. So um, the political sensitivity of us countries to migration is quite um, quite heterogeneous, to use a polite term. Uh, but you're absolutely right, Hugo. Um, we have four minutes to go, and I'm going to close with one uh, question uh, directed at Simeon that says, uh, uh, given all the debt that... Uh, countries are issuing and all the extraordinary expenses they are incurring, what do you think is the future of much needed um, structure, infrastructure investments to turn the economy green? Will investments to mitigate climate change be a victim of the current crisis? What do you think, Simeon? I think, Andres, this is where the discussion of the future of the tax system comes, comes again in. Uh, in that at the moment, yes, this massive amounts of uh, fiscal assistance uh, that is primarily going to um, existing businesses to keep uh, jobs, job retention is the right, uh, the right solution, the right answer to the crisis. But over time, it will displace uh, some of the basic uh, infrastructure uh, investment, particularly as the tax systems uh, are also burdened by um, the uh, levels of distress in the financial sector. Unless we use this opportunity, and some countries are starting to discuss it, to say, well, this is actually a good opportunity for us to go to the next economy. And we discuss some sectoral um, views, but this issue of, uh, of the green economy comes very, uh, very strong. And we do have various uh, types of uh, excise taxes that go towards uh, a greening economy with the notable exception of the United States uh, and Brazil to some extent. But this may be the right time to go in that uh, direction. So not just as part of the COVID recovery phase, but also more generally for the next 10, 20 years, 
we have infrastructure investment that are going towards the green uh, economy. And on that, I'm quite optimistic because there was a discussion before the crisis, again, led primarily by France and President Macron, um, but with many participants around the world. And I think this is the propitious moment to go in that uh, in that direction. So as I said, I'm uh, quite, uh, quite optimistic that this crisis will accelerate the move towards uh, green economy uh, investments. I share your optimism, Simeon. If, uh, if our colleague uh, Nick Stern were here, he would say that uh, this is exactly the right time to do that because um, as the recovery begins, which will not happen tomorrow, but sometime down the road, governments will be under great pressure to spend more on infrastructure. And then the question will be, do we build 20th century style brown infrastructure or do we build 21st century style green infrastructure? So if we do it right, it could be the rare situation in which there is a win-win uh, situation. That is to say, you spend money on infrastructure, which creates jobs. Uh, you hire people to build things, but at the same time, you enjoy gains uh, in the future uh, on, 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 um, on climate abatement and, uh, and uh, a greener environment uh, post-COVID. Having said that, I suggest that we leave it at that um, optimistic note. We've said lots of things that are not uh, particularly optimistic, but maybe that's uh, a good point to, um, to thank everybody for participating. Um, the different LSE um, departments and institutions, uh, uh, and to Simeon in particular for uh, thinking of this panel and putting it together. We are very, very thankful. To um, Anne, Jeremy, Ugo, uh, thank you very, very much for your insights, for your knowledge, for uh, the willingness to spend time, uh, share your insights with us, and, uh, and take questions from the audience. And of course, to everybody who joined us on Zoom, on um, Facebook, uh, through streaming, thank you very, very much. Uh, we are delighted and proud that the LSE has been able to carry out such a successful series of public events on COVID. Uh, we have a few more, actually quite a few more scheduled for June and July, and then we will have yet another bigger series in the autumn. So with that, thank you very, very much, everyone, and have a pleasant weekend. Goodbye.